0: This summer, my family embarked on a camping trip to the Smoky Mountains. And we determined that we wanted to experience the mountains of Tennessee with the same level of intensity that we experienced Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons. And so I booked a campsite deep within the Smoky Mountain National Park. However, We got more than we bargained for. The first alarming sight was the presence of a very large bear trap in the campsite adjacent to ours. (laughs) The park ranger had warned us there were bears in the camp so we needed to be sure that we put all our food away. But when you sleep next to a bear trap, it makes it a little more evident, it was right like right there. Secondly, there was no electricity, there were no showers at the campground. Now, we expected this, and we dealt with this in other camping experiences, but not in environments that were so humid, with rivers that were so incredibly cold, and legitimate showers that were 25 minutes away. And finally, we also learned why the Smoky National Park is so lush and green. Because during the month of July, the climate of the Smoky Mountains resembles that of a rainforest. And it rains hard every single night. It rains hard every single night. So our camping trip lasted five days. We had a great time being together, but our living conditions were candidly, more challenging than what I had anticipated. Now, I found myself, even in the middle of the trip, thinking this thought, you know, this is, a, this is a lot harder than what I remembered camping being. Maybe I'm getting wimpy or becoming too much of a suburban dude or whatever, I don't know. But I found myself thinking, this is a lot more uncomfortable than what I had imagined. Now, I had warned my family. In fact, I had them all sign disclosure statements about what the camping experience was going to be like. No, I hadn't, but I merely had desired to do so. I had warned them about the lack of the facilities, how cold the river would be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet it was challenging. And so looking back, I would tell you that in my head, I had sort of a romantic idealism as it relates to this camping experience, But the reality of that camping experience was far more challenging and even disorienting than what I imagined. The romantic idea of camping in the Smokies was great, but the reality was more than I anticipated. So next time we'll get a cabin. (laughs) Or maybe bring a big generator like the guy next door had. It just, it wasn't what I imagined. Over the last number of years, I've felt a similar emotional feeling and seen it in other people when it comes to what it means to be a Christian in our culture today. For most of our lives, if you've grown up in church or if you've read the Bible, you've read words like strangers and aliens and As followers of Jesus, I think many of us had had sort of a romantic idealism as to what those words mean. For most of us, being an alien meant that we went to church when other people slept in. Or we shared the gospel or the five spiritual laws with people who may or may not believe what you believed. It meant that we didn't swear like others did. And it meant that we were careful not to go to the wrong kind of movies. That's what it meant to be an alien. Being a Christian was being different, but not that different. There was some sort of kind of normative national ethic in which biblical Christianity kind of fit pretty well. The United States, at some level, felt as though it wasn't one nation under God. But that sense is quickly fading. And what has replaced it is a new cultural norm where being an incognito, comfortable, and cultural Christian is a shrinking island. In other words, believing that the Bible is authoritative, that ethical standards, especially in regards to human sexuality, are determined outside of ourselves, And that salvation is offered exclusively through the work of Jesus is increasingly creating conflict, putting relationships and even jobs at risk, and pushing committed Christians to the margins of society. So when you and I hear the word exile, I hear that word different in 2016 than I heard it in 2006. We're discovering that you can actually become an exile without ever leaving your home. You can become an exile in your own family. You can become an exile as it relates to your long-standing career in your neighborhood and in society at large. Writing in 2014, Carl Truman, a professor at Westminster Seminary said this, we live in a time of exile. At least those of us do who hold to traditional Christian beliefs. The Western Public Square is no longer a place where Christians feel they belong with any degree of comfort. For Christians in the United States, this is particularly disorienting. In Europe, Christianity was pushed to the margins over a couple of centuries, the tide of faith retreated slowly. In America, the process seems to be happening much more rapidly. I know you feel this. And it's been my aim this year to try and get our heads and our hearts around this particular issue. That's why we looked at lamentations at the beginning of the year. When, when life turns difficult, I want you to know what song you sing when it's in a minor key. We talked about heaven so that we could sort of reset our affections as to where a Christian's true citizenship lies. We looked at the life of Daniel to see the example of somebody who figured out how to live in Babylon but not let Babylon live in him. And then we looked at the believability of the Bible in the month of August so that you could be assured that the Bible can not only be trusted but it's also authoritative in your life. And all these series were designed throughout this year to help us think differently, not only about the cultural challenges that we're facing, but then also to set us up for the study that we begin today in 1 Peter, which as a book, I think is probably, in the New Testament, the most helpful and clearest book about how to live in a culture when it seems as though that culture is turning against you. So from this Sunday through June of next year, we're gonna be diving deep into this book. We're gonna walk really, really slow through this book, like some Sundays, like one or two verses. Take some time off in Advent, also some time off around our Think conference, but for the next number of months, on Sundays and in our small groups, we're gonna dial into 1 Peter. Now why 1 Peter? Let me give you a few reasons. The first reason is this, that I want you to see the shifting cultural reality not as a trend to be feared, but as an opportunity to be embraced. I want to secondly remind you who you really are as a follower of Jesus and what our calling is all about, because it is easy to forget why we're here. Third, we need 1 Peter so that we will not be surprised when we experience the weirdness of Christianity. When someone looks at you like really, you believe that? That you'll know, oh, I'm just being treated like an exile. Fourth, so that you would be driven back to the Bible to see how relevant it is for your life. That you'd see in First Peter things that, Peter was saying to people centuries ago and realized that that really relates to me and where I live. Also fifth, so that you could see and appreciate the uniqueness of your church experience every Sunday that the exiles gather together to receive instruction from God's word, to sing together, to encourage one another, and then to be scattered out into the world to be able to take the light of the gospel. This month we're celebrating the one year of the launch of our campus in Fishers, and this particular graphic is in the forefront of my mind as we walk into First Peter, which is that our most effective strategy to bring the gospel into our city is not what happens on 96th in Town, it what happens as you go out into the world. And our people, you, were all over this wonderful city. And if you could understand what it means to be mobilized towards godliness, the impact is absolutely stunning. So my hope is that we'll gather around 1 Peter for the next number of months, and then you'll be sent out into the world to fulfill the calling that God has placed on your life. The series title is This Exiled Life. And my aim is to try and help you see that being in exile means simply living out God's calling on your life with hopeful trust in His plan. Realizing that God's put a calling on my life like I'm here for a reason, He's put me in this generation on purpose. I'm in this city for a reason, I have this job for this particular reason, and then as I walk through this life that God's given me, that I can realize that having an exiled life is not some sort of plan B, but rather that I can live with hopeful trust, and I can stand firm all the way to the end. Go to the very end of 1 Peter. Let me show you this text. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, Peter says this, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, and here's, here's his aim, here's what Paul's, or Peter is trying to do, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So he's going to lay before these people the true grace of God, and then he says this, stand firm in it. That's what he wants them to do. So this book helps us to do some things. It helps us to sort of reset our expectations of how do you live in a culture when that culture seems to be slightly or significantly turning hostile to biblical Christianity? How do you you live with God-centered trust when something happens and you realize I'm an exile. Some of you already have that feeling. When you gather with your blood relatives at Thanksgiving, you may be the only believer in the room, and it's crazy. Like, these are your people, but they're not. Some of you feel that way at work when there's conversations that feel at times like a runaway train of postmodern thought, and you don't know, should I get off this train? Do I pull the emergency brake? Do I just be silent? Like when do I say, "Um, I don't agree with that? Some of you sense some kind of looming cloud of a potential challenge that is probably gonna be faced in your future career, or maybe something that's coming down from the HR department at your place of employment, or you just sense it in, in general. Maybe you started recently at school, and it just honestly feels like it's really weird to be a committed Christian. Maybe you you moved into a new neighborhood, and you're trying to figure out, how do I build relationships with people? How do I love them when I just see life so differently, and they look at me so strangely? It may even be here that you're, it may be that you're here, and you're not a Christian, and you're trying to figure out, what is it that you people believe? And I hope that we'll be able to show you from 1 Peter what it really means to follow Jesus. So Peter's vision of how to live as an exile is really captured in a couple key words in verses 1 to 2. What I want to do is just kind of introduce this subject of the exiled life by looking at three things. A divine calling, a divine plan, and divine hope. So first, divine calling. The text says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. That phrase, elect exiles of the dispersion, is a very significant phrase that we need to fully unpack. But before I get into those three key words, it's important for you to understand a little bit about the background of this book. If you're studying a book of the Bible, it's important to know things like, so who wrote the book, to whom was it written, what was the reason that it was written, all of those things kind of serve as the, as the frame for this picture. So verse 1 begins, it tells us that Peter is the one who wrote the book. There's some scholars who debate whether or not Peter actually wrote the book because of the, the nature of the, um, the grammar, the significance of the Greek, because Peter, after all, was a fisherman, but The reality is that there's no compelling reason to doubt that Peter himself wrote this wonderful book in front of us. Chapter one and verse one claims it as such. It says that it's written to those who are elect exiles in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So a little map, these these are regions or provinces within the Roman Empire within modern-day Turkey, and the the order of these particular provinces likely relates to the circuit that the letter traveled. So Peter sent this by way of a man named Silvanus, and it's likely that these are the various regions that he traveled to. These churches would have been comprised mostly of Gentiles— There were Jews that may have been present, but Peter's main target are Gentiles, and they must have known something about the Old Testament because there's a number of Old Testament references within this book. Peter writes to these believers who, based upon what we find in this book, as you'll see it as we walk through it, they're in the early stages of cultural opposition and some form of initial persecution is starting to come toward them. Now, we don't have any evidence that any of them were martyred for their faith, although there was some level of sort of verbal abuse and, and maybe some aspects of even physical mistreatment. But it appears that like widespread state-sanctioned persecution had not yet begun. Under the reign of Nero, we know that did take place beginning around 64 AD. So this letter was written prior to that as these people are just noticing that their culture is beginning to turn and so what do they do about that how do they think and and how do they live so there are three key words to help us understand this divine calling it's the word dispersion the word exile and the word elect so to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. If you have a particular translation like I do, the, the word dispersion is capitalized, capital D, dispersion. If you have another translation, it may simply read, to those who are scattered. Dispersion and scattered is essentially the same word, but the ESV translators made the word scattered a proper noun, because dispersion means more than just generally scattered. In the same way that if I were to say, greetings to those who are pilgrims. In our cultural context, the word pilgrim has both a meaning and it has a history connected to it. In the same way that the word dispersion here has a meaning, it means to be scattered, but it also has a historical connection to it. And what is that? Well, in the Old Testament, Traumatic times created dispersions as God's people were forced to flee their homeland. So to be part of the dispersion meant that there was uh, some kind of displacement that had happened. They were, in effect, refugees and usually had a longing to return back to their homeland. So it's a loaded term. To be part of the dispersion means that where you are living is not, in fact, your home. And what's interesting is that first, this word is used here and only here for non Jewish people. And what's more, these people likely had not been scattered. They were living where they had been living. Maybe some of them had relocated, but there wasn't some kind of massive dispersion that had taken place among the Gentiles. But instead, what Peter does is he grabs this historically loaded, the spiritually significant term, and he applies it to people, not who had been physically displaced, but people whose culture around them had begun to displace them right where they're living. They had become exiles without even traveling. They had become refugees without ever fleeing. So Peter uses it in a metaphorical sense to connect his primarily Gentile audience to the greater calling on their lives. He's reminding them that while you're living in these regions, you're part of something that's bigger than yourself. Isn't that great to be reminded? That the place that you are, the job that you're in, the gifts that you've been given, and the difficulties that have come your way are not somehow a capricious act that's out of control. That there is a sovereign calling over every single one of our lives. And that God calls us into something bigger than ourselves. It's one of the reasons why the gathering of Sunday morning is really helpful, is because it reminds us that we're not just isolated individuals trying to follow Jesus, that collectively we're trying to do this thing together. And so Peter calls them the dispersion, part of something bigger than themselves. Then he calls them exiles. Now, exiles and dispersion kind of go together. And he's writing to these people who are not physical exiles, but now. To be in exile really fits their experience. At at best, they're outside of the mainstream. At worst, they're beginning to become outcasts. They're, They're living as citizens of Rome, and yet they are spiritual foreigners because their citizenship is in another kingdom. They're having to figure out, what do we do that Christ is Lord, but Caesar also wants to be Lord? What do we do that we live in the midst of this society and yet God calls us to live for another kingdom? They were spiritual refugees, they were Christian pilgrims, they were spiritual aliens because their hearts, their minds were set, or at least they were supposed to be set, on another kingdom. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland." If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Notice that exiles, spiritual exiles, have their hearts, their minds trained toward another kingdom, toward another city. So both the word exile and dispersion indicates a significant distinction between God's people and the people of the world. What Peter tells us here is that the normative reality for God's people is that they are going to be different. They're going to be out of place. The effect is that they have a different reason for living on earth. They have a different way of living. And as we'll see later on in 1 Peter, they are also treated differently by those in the world. So being in exile has both glorious realities connected to it and also painful realities connected to it. You know, I was thinking about the idea of being a refugee and our, our city has a, a number of refugees that have come into it, a number of our new members, in fact, are former refugees. When, you, when you're a refugee, you don't wanna stay a refugee forever, in fact, The normative process for a refugee is get integrated into the culture, become part of that culture, and just become part of the mainstream. That's what refugees do, but that's not what spiritual refugees do. In fact, spiritual refugees, the danger is that you would become so inculcated in your culture, you'd become so entrenched in that society that there would be no distinction between you and anyone else who's a part of that culture. You see, I think that's what many of us are struggling with, is how do you live in a world when American culture and biblical Christianity are uncoupled from one another? Those are new, There's new categories, new questions, new challenges that are related to that. How do, you, how do you live in a world? How do you go to school? How do you live in your fraternity house? How do you make your way through the marketplace when at times you're Marginalized or criticized or derided or even laughed at. Peter uses a loaded term, exile, and dispersion in order to connect the followers of Jesus to who their true identity really rests in. Where does our ultimate citizenship lie? And you know when that matters? That matters when somebody says something to you and you go back to your office cubicle or you get in your car and you think, that really stinks that they said that. Or you see something comes through in an email and you think, I don't know how much longer I can work here. And in that moment, what really matters is, but my identity is not found in this job. And my identity is not found in what those people think of me. My identity is I am a child of God. And my identity is I'm an exile. And so sometimes I'm going to be treated like an exile. Peter writes to these believers to help them. And then he uses one final term or word, the word elect. He says they are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now he uses this term in order to ground them into the ultimate controlling reality of the universe, which is the sovereignty of God. The word elect simply means chosen by God. It's used in the Old Testament and the New Testament in reference to God's sovereignly, orchestration, sovereign orchestration of the lives of people. Israel was often called God's chosen people, and his election is tied to his love. Now there's a great mystery here as to why God does what he does in election, and when I preached on Romans 9 through 11, I unpacked all of that for you, so if you have interest in that, go to those sermons, it'll solve all your questions, all the problems, answer all your questions. They won't. (laughs) The doctrine of election is here for a reason. It promises that behind the difficulties, the challenges, the opposition, and even behind suffering is the sovereignty of God. That the floor of everything in life circumstances, pains, things that people say about you, that there's a floor underneath that, and that floor is the sovereign purpose of God. So when you are either hurt or when you're confused or you're afraid or you look at the things of culture, you're like, man, I don't know what's going on. There is one thing you know that is going on. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is still on his throne. He's working out his plan, and just because you don't see how it's working out doesn't mean that it's not right according to schedule. That's what it means. So, why did God cause you to be born into the family that you were born into and not some family in India or Burma or Venezuela? Why did he put you where you are in 2016? There are no coincidences. Everything is orchestrating under the dominion of a God who is never out of control. And friends, this really matters because it helps us trust God when things get difficult or painful. Because to be in exile means that there are all kinds of things that are going to happen to you that you don't know how it all fits together, and you can simply rest or chill out and simply say, God, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know you're in control. And what I know is I am safe in the arms of Jesus, so no matter whatever happens to me in life, like you've still got it. You've got me, you got this, you got my job, you got my career, you got my kids, you got it all. It says they are elect exiles. Their exile was not something that happened by accident. Secondly, this idea of God's sovereignty matters. Because God placed us on earth not simply to integrate into the culture, to go incognito, and to never identify with Jesus. He didn't place us here for that purpose. The divine calling means that there is a purpose for every single believer's life, and we need to be sure that we are still on the same page as God as it relates to his playbook. It is easy to agree with Martin Luther and sing, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. And then it shows up at work. And you begin to think, am I ready to walk away from this? Am I willing to name the name of Jesus with my neighbor? Or do I just sing songs on Sunday? Do I believe this is true? Or is this just work for me one day a week? The divine calling means that there is a divine purpose for your life, and some Christians are shocked when criticism comes, or opposition comes, or suffering comes, and here's why. Because they want to have Jesus added to their kingdom. But when Jesus comes, He takes all the kingdoms. A divine calling on our lives means that our mission, our purpose, our identity is clear. So you may find yourself in a very difficult moment right now, or seven months from now, eight months from now, you may find yourself in a challenging moment where you feel the weight of man. It is not easy to be a follower of Jesus. And when that moment comes, be reminded, God chose you for this moment. There's a divine calling. Here's the second thing. There's a divine plan. That's just verse one. Verse 2, we have four phrases, all of which relate to God's plan for redemption. So the plan is that God would glorify himself by redeeming a people for himself, and Peter anchors us in that plan. Verse 2, It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The foreknowledge of God the Father. What does that mean? Well, it's very similar to the word election. It means more than just God knows what's going to happen in the future. The word foreknowledge is connected to God's sovereign love. To be foreknown is to be loved. It's the same way that Jesus was foreknown by the Father. The Father loved him according to 1 Peter 1 and verse 20. The foreknowledge of God means that we are linked to his covenantal and redemptive love. It's like the the, the hymn writer back in the 1800s captured it this way. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless and free, rolling as the mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. It means that God set his love on you. Why you? Why you? It's not because you're a great catch. (laughs) It's not because you bring all kinds of things to the table. It's not because you're gonna change the world. He set his love on you because he's gracious. The plan is for him to be made glorious, not for you to be safe. His plan is for him to be made much of, not for you to have this particular life you hoped you would have. The plan is for him to be made much of. That's the plan of the universe. That's why you were redeemed. That's why you were saved. It wasn't just to save you from your sins. It was so that the entire created order would look at the grace of God as expressed in your life and say, my, how much this God loves these people. Why does he love them? And the answer is not because humans are awesome. That's why. Look at how they're wonderful there. Look what they do. The answer is not because of the enamorment that the created order would have with human beings, but it is because God, in his infinite mercy, loved the unlovable. He saved those who would rebel against him, and he gave his own son so that these people could be saved, so that his glory could be evident. That's the plan. That's the plan in sanctification of the Spirit. What does that mean? It means not progressive sanctification. In this case, it means God's aim is to make his people a holy people. That's what it means. It's talking about not progressive sanctification, but positional or definitive sanctification. God's aim is to make a unholy people a holy people for the praise of his name, for obedience to Jesus Christ. In light of 1 Peter 1:22, it seems that this is yet another way of describing conversion, that God's plan is to redeem a people who will pledge their fealty to Jesus, who will say, you're my king, and I'll serve you no matter what happens, because you have rescued me from myself. And for sprinkling with his blood, Peter is now picking up an Old Testament ceremony where people are made clean or a covenant was inaugurated by the sprinkling of blood as people pledged their allegiance to their covenant-keeping God. So Peter puts all of these things together, and what he is doing here is showing us the deep well of the gospel in order to anchor these exiles as to why they should be living the exiled life. Or let me put it this way. Suffering, like nothing else, tests if you legitly believe what you say you believe. Or, hardship, like nothing else, tests if you really love what you say you love. You see, this is part of the reason why you need a book like First Peter in your life, why You need to listen carefully as we walk through this book because it reminds us what is really worth living for. This book reminds us what is really worth suffering for and what is worth dying for and if we're honest, we know that our affections need to be regularly challenged because our affections leak. You come out of here so big hearted for Christ, you go to lunch, And your commitment to Jesus could vanish just like that if somebody put you to the test. Were it not for God's grace, you'd never respond correctly, never answer really well, and always live in fear of what might happen to you if you drew a line and said, no, I'm sorry, I'm a follower of Jesus. Peter writes to these people who are exiles in order to remind them of what is really valuable. book of Hebrews says that Jesus endured the race that was set before him because of the joy that was in front of him. And yet for many of us, if we're honest, the idealistic picture, the romantic idealism of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is challenged by the reality in which we live. And if we're honest, we can talk a really good game And Peter helps us to know how to be there and follow through, standing firm all the way to the end. When I was in college, my freshman year, to my freshman and sophomore year, I traveled on a basketball team that went over to the Philippines. And some of you may may have told this story before, but After a month, I was really ready to come home. We were, the night before we were going to leave, ready to board into a plane. We were in Seoul, Korea, and um, we were talking about what would happen if our seat got double booked. Would you give up your seat and stay here for a day or a week so that other people could go? And of course, I'm sitting on the edge of my bed saying, oh yeah, no problem, I'd give up my seat. Like, you would not. I would, I'd give up my seat, I'd give you my seat. And you'd stay here, I'd stay here. So we get loaded up in the plane, and my seat was double booked, and it was a mom with a baby. Yeah, I know, right? So it made it even worse. So I gave up my seat, and and all my basketball players are behind me, and they're like, hey, you're gonna stay in Seoul, Korea, you know? And they're, I'm like, oh, I don't know, you know? And so the, the stewardess says, hey, sir, can you find a seat? I'm like, I don't I, I, I have a seat. So well, you are gonna have to get off the plane. I'm like, I can't get off this plane, right? And I'm thinking about what I said the other night and everything else, right? And the guy's like, hey, you're gonna to have to stay because it was really easy to talk a big game, sitting on my bed talking about giving up my seat. And now I'm here in the middle of the airplane having to consider giving up my seat. And what I said the night before is one thing, but having to walk through it in the airplane totally different game. You want to hear how it ended? (laughs) It all worked out just fine. I sat in executive first class the whole way home, so. Your life may not turn out like that in this lifetime. But God has something imperishable undefiled, unfading, kept in executive first class in heaven for you. There's a divine calling, there's a divine plan. Pray with me and we'll give you the last one. Father, now we pray give us hope as we receive the Lord's table, make these elements reminders of what is in the last part of verse two. So give us grace and peace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.